Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 156 for August 7th, 2008. Listener feedback number 47. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by Visa. With every purchase, Visa prevents, detects, and resolves online fraud. Safe, secure, Visa. It's time for Security Now, everybody's favorite show about protecting yourself online. With us, our security guru, Mr. Steve Gibson from Irvine, California. Shaky Irvine, California. <laughs> well, yes, the earth is not moving at the moment, uh, so that's a good thing. It was, uh, you know, we ha- I was watching you on video. We didn't have the ability to broadcast the video because uh, of some technical issues last week. And you were shaking around pretty darn good. I mean, it looked like the Starship Enterprise when they hit a you know asteroid belt. It was it was serious, and you know, in California, especially Southern California, we're sort of accommodated to earthquakes. It's not such a big deal. I know that uh, I've talked to people sometimes. We haven't had a lot of earthquakes for a long time, too. But I'll talk to somebody who's like from the Midwest, where the ground is a lot more stable, and they they it just you know out. they they experience yeah, yeah exactly they experience one. And they're like. Okay, I'm moving home. I, this this is but, wrong. But we we don't have tornadoes, hurricanes. You know, there's always right. something. And that Mother Nature never lets you get scot free. And okay. those of us who live in California and have been through a few of them, we're you know just yeah. you were yeah, very. Just, I was I was so impressed. In fact, that's why I left it in the show instead of editing it out because you you know you, oh we're having an earthquake. You, you wrote it out and said okay, let's get going. <laughs> <laughs> You're not a didn't pause a beat. It's very impressive. Hey, ah well, been a few. We've got a Q and A show, and it was it was apparently uh, what they call it a moderate quake. It was five point eight, but it wasn't well, uh, wasn't the a- the thing that was the saving grace. Apparently, is that it was a much deeper quake uh, than normal. Uh, it was it was five plus miles down instead of being up near the surface. And if it was near the surface, that even that that uh, size of quake on on the Richter scale would have been a you know a serious event. But yeah. being down that deep, it it smoothed it out a lot, so it wasn't as 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 sharp as it was, uh, as, as it would have been had it been you know much much nearer the surface. Okay. So that's a good thing. Yeah, thank goodness. Yeah. yeah, and as you pointed out last week, it's great to release that tension. So I got to have a tension release every so often, every once in a while, as we all know. Keep us all sane. <laughs> We're going to do a Q and A session. We've got some great questions uh, from from listeners around the world, as usual, uh, and we'll get to that in just a moment. We also have some updates, uh, some uh, some security issues. But before we do that, I do want to mention that this show is brought to you by the good folks at Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com, the Astaro Security Gateway. If your small or medium business needs superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers, if you want complete VPN capabilities using SSL, by the way, which makes it so much easier for your end users, intrusion protection, complete content filtering, including peer-to-peer and instant messaging, and an industrial-strength firewall on a single, easy-to-use, high-performance appliance 
you want Astaro. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. By now, everybody should know Astaro is the premier name in this business. And if you call 877, the number 4 Astaro, you can schedule a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway in your business. In fact, there's a free version for non-commercial users. You can try. You download it from their site, astaro.com slash security now. Or you can get a VMware appliance, which I think is really cool. So there's no installation involved at all. There's also uh, for um, they're amazing if if you've uh, if you've not seen Astaro Command Center ACC, which is free for users of the Astaro Security Gateway. It's amazing network administration and management system, just beautiful, very slick. You can see that at Astaro.com. And if you're a former Cisco PIX user, you know end of life on the PIX. Special discounts are available for you too. Call eight seven seven four two seven eight two seven six. That's eight seven seven the number four. A-S-T-A-R-O, Astaro Security Gateway. It's the best way to keep you safe, your business and your sanity safe and sound. We thank them so much for their support of security. Now, any uh, any news in the uh, in the text? There is a, There was a big uh, security flaw, wasn't there, Steve? Yeah, the big, the, it's been a relatively calm week, thank goodness, because, you know, this DNS problem that we discussed in detail last week has really been causing problems. Um, there's still... A large number, um, as of this day, um, we're recording this on on first day of August, um, more than half of the servers being tested by the various testing facilities are turning up still vulnerable. Wow. And More than and half? More than half. A little, uh, it's 53, I think 53% was what I was seeing. That doesn't seem right. Holy and, cow. Well, and, and what's going to happen is the... The problem is there are just so many DNS servers, and there are there are arguably some that are, you know, they're not going to be big targets, but they're important targets. Right. And so I think we're going to see the the major the major ISPs will be under so much pressure to fix this that they're just you know they're going to have to do it. Um, but there's been a lot of reluctance shown. It's like ah oh, well, do we really have to do this? And the good news is that that you know. Consumers who are able to see that that the, the DNS they're using can be too easily spoofed are are really you know raising a ruckus. Um, on last week's show notes, that is the show notes for episode one fifty five, I've got three links now to three testing facilities that are available, and I'm working on my own. By the time we record our next episode, I imagine GRCs. DNS spoofing tester will be online. Oh, it'll, it'll be another facility very much like Shields Up. I'm going to do a whole bunch of really cool stuff that nobody else is doing. So um, I'll be t- certainly telling our listeners about that as soon as it's online. And I just figure this is a big problem. DNS spoofing is a problem. This has raised sort of a, the – it's put it back in play, the, the whole problem of spoofing. As we know that – you know, this these problems have been there for a long time, but just haven't been given much attention. So this focuses the attention. And one of the problems that people are discovering is that NAT routers, which so many DNS servers are behind, um, are de-randomizing their random ports. So even when you apply the DNS patch, mm. if, if you're behind some sort of network appliance, which is not allowing the random outgoing port assignment to survive NAT translation, 
you you lose the randomness. So that's creating some some new opportunities. So you know it's 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 turning out to be a problem. But what I wanted to tell people was if anybody is using the real player, any real player version prior to eleven, some serious security vulnerabilities have recently be, recently been addressed and discovered in earlier versions. So absolutely make sure that you update your real player to version 11. Uh, that's, that's really the only new news of the week. Um, also, an, an, an interesting issue with DNS spoofing relative to testing sites arose because people realized, wait a minute, if, if sites can be spoofed and my DNS server can be spoofed, then how do I know that I'm going to a real DNS testing site? Oh, that's through, a good question. Through my spoof DNS. Right. Be, because one of the first things you would expect bad guys to do, or something they could certainly do, would be to set up a fake right. testing site right. to say, oh, don't worry, no your problem. DNS is Every, no problem. Your DNS is fine. He's working great. You're safe. <laughs> You're fine. Don't worry. <laughs> and, and, and the point is, I mean, it, it, it's a perfect example of of a, a real security issue yeah. because it's you know if your dns is is has been spoofed then you can't trust the lookup right. and if you can't trust the lookup and you're using a domain name to get to the testing site then you're you know you don't know that you've really done that so um there is an ip address for that the um the oarc site the ip address is 149 Oh, and they actually they they made this um, URL easy to to access. It's just it's just the IP address one four nine dot two zero dot three dot three three slash test. So if you use the SNP URL, for instance, if you used any English language domain name, that could be spoofed. But if you enter yeah, in yes. the IP address directly. Then you then no, nothing in your system is going to your DNS server. It's directly connecting to that IP address. The browser says, I don't need an IP address. You just gave me one. Fine. In fact, that's a fast way to go to any site if you know the address. But the problem is that's why they did this thing, because nobody remembers those dotted quads. Right. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to take people back to a, a dotted quad when they come to grc.com, if they're going to run the test, just to sort of so that if they copy the link and share the link, if they if they write it down, if they make a shortcut, it'll automatically be giving them the IP address just as an extra level of confidence that they're able to know that they're really at GRC. And I'm going to run it over um, a secure connection. So again, they'll they'll have they'll have that as well. So having that certificate really also gives you some reassurance. Could you can yeah, now. Can't I can't see. use can't use the certificate with the IP address though, so it's going to have to be uh, one or the other because the certificate okay. is the domain name, right? And there and the domain name wouldn't be in the browser; it'd be the IP address. And who knows what random firewall? You know, I mean, Zone Alarm has gone so hyper reactive now; it, it might block you from using an IP address. I mean, they're they've just really gone overboard. So, but it'll be available, and it'll be you know a, a suggestion for somebody who wants to absolutely know they're actually talking to you know. GRC and they haven't been spoofed. I noticed when I enter the IP address that it does uh, resolve to a name, so maybe the certificate would would work at that point. 
Ah, so in their case, they're 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 yes. So they're seeing it come in, right. and oh, and, and also, is it an HTTPS? Because I think OARC is running over uh, SSL it's for not, the test. Actually, it's just an HTTP, uh, and then well. you get a very long, which looks like a hash number, followed by et.dns-oarc.net. Right. So they're, I don't know what they're doing there. Maybe that hash is of some security significance. Well, I just figured that. Since since DNS spoofing is an issue on, you know, I, I delayed getting involved in doing my own for a while. I mean, I'm deep in the middle of, of dealing of wrapping up this third party cookie thing. But it's like, well, you know, it would just be good to always have it there. And who knows? Someone, you know, an ISP might fall back and 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 regress and and stop uh, port randomization and no one would know it. So one of the things that GRC is doing, I'm becoming a little proactive about this. I'll be testing DNS spoofability all the time for everyone who comes and notifying anybody if their DNS server. Oh, that's DNS nice. Server, yeah. So it'll just be happening in the background and transparent. Uh, and I'll be doing the same thing with third party cookies just to let people know, yep, they're still turned off. So it's, it's funny. I, um, it tests, I, apparently cause I'm using open DNS. I have, uh, you know, my DNS goes through open DNS, but it can still see that I'm on Comcast. So it tests, my Comcast DNS servers, as well as my Open DNS servers, Open DNS huh? great, Comcast still poor in the source port randomness, but the transaction ID randomness is great. What does now, that okay. mean? Well, now so with source port randomness, it says poor. I'm really I'm a little annoyed with that test because you can't get a worse rating than poor, even if all the queries come from a static port. It ought to say horrible. If yeah. you've got it all coming from one port. So how many different um, ports did it come from in that test? Unique ports, 24. Okay. And the range, uh, let's see, number of samples, 25, unique ports, 24. They're not sequential. They're, the scatter plot looks pretty random, so I'm not sure exactly what they're seeing here. Right, and so it'll also show you how many bits of entropy um, is, a, is available. Bits is it of like- randomness, on, only 10, and maybe that's why it's saying poor. Yeah, that's, that's definitely why. And it, so it sounds like, you know, it sounds like something is going on. And this may be a, this is the perfect example of what a lot of ISPs are still are still putting out is they're they're not super random ports. They're 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 within a restricted range. And that's generally in, indicative of some sort of post DNS server processing that's limiting the randomness of the outgoing port. So and so, so how they're they're the doing some work. sort of weird stuff in there in addition to the DNS. Probably yes. Yeah. Okay. yeah, because if they, I mean, if they had applied the full patch, they would be they would be generating ports over the entire six five five three six right or six five five three five port range. Oh, I see. There, it's definitely not. It's it's sixteen thousand nine sixteen through seventeen thousand eight fifteen. Right, so it's within within a restricted range, yeah. and of course, what that means is that an, an an attacker can see what range you're currently generating, yeah. and while it's not as easy as if you had a static port, it it you know certainly restricts the guessing and hugely improves their opportunity for for a penetration. Yeah. So, well, that's too bad. Nice um, try, want, Comcast. Yeah, <laughs> well, they're you know, and this again, we we, we need their customers to know what's going on in order to put pressure on them to get this fixed. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I I also mentioned last week that I believed that the DDWRT version of of firmware was vulnerable, and it's confirmed it is, 
and there is a patch. So I wanted to let anybody who has been like flashing their routers and is running DDWRT, I'm sure if that's someone, you know who you are, um, that there is an update to to solve this problem um, for you know individual end user routers. Again, I don't think it's a huge issue because I would be surprised if end users would be targets. It makes much more sense to attack an ISP and in, in, and thereby spoof everybody who uses that ISP's DNS server. But you know there are certainly you can imagine situations where this kind of tool becomes readily available where um, you know individuals could get targeted when they upset somebody in a blog or in an online forum yep. or something yep. you know we, we we've seen lots of little you know in in the in the past dns attack or dos attacks on individuals so you could certainly imagine you know individualized spoofing attacks aimed at at just um, a single person for one one particular reason you know it's a real problem is irc chat because uh, it's pretty easy to see figure out what somebody's ip address is in irc Right. Uh, that's usually published. And uh, and of course, that's where people get in flame wars all the time. And right. that's where all the script kitties hang out. So it's really kind of a perfect storm of of, of evilness. Hey, I want to uh, read a poem that you sent me that is just really cute. And I want to get our spin right letter. But before we do, can I mention Visa real quickly? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Since we are talking security, when you shop online, uh, we want to encourage you to use Visa. This show brought to you by Visa. We all have better things to think about when it comes to shopping online. Do you want the Linksys N or the Belkin N? You know, are you are you looking for the Ergo chipset or the Atheros chipset? That's more important than thinking about online fraud. And you don't have to when you use your Visa card. All purchases you make with Visa are safe and secure. Visa has many ways to prevent, detect, resolve online fraud, including very sophisticated. I was I was really impressed when I uh, when they told me about this uh, technology, the software they use. They're able to manage hundreds of millions of transactions a day and go through these it's like searching for a needle in a haystack but they have an incredible success rate of finding fraudulent activity identifying it and resolving it immediately the bottom line for you zero liability you're just not liable for unauthorized purchases when you use your visa that's peace of mind safe secure visa we thank them so much for their support of security now well i don't know if you can hear it steve the the lawn blower brigade has decided to encamp Outside my window. I hope it's not bugging you. <laughs> no, it's quiet at this end. <laughs> they, they show up at this hour of the morning every morning. Or not every morning, every week. And uh, and they stand outside my window. And I think they do a little um, kind of precision routine. They march oh, in yeah. and out. Oh, it's just amazing. However, a little noisy. So I just I just want to warn you. But let me read this. This is, a, this is from um, a, uh, a blog called Rational Survivability. Uh, a guy named um, Hoff. Hoff, Hoff or Hoff? Did a really good job. Christopher this. Hoff wrote this. It's called the DNS Debacle and Poetic Review. I'm going to put on my uh, Orson Welles voice for this one. Okay. A few months ago, Kaminsky discovered a flaw. It was with DNS. It was nasty and raw. Actually, maybe I should have used the Dr. Seuss voice here. Now, can you hear them? Here they come. Yep, now I, they're coming. They come. <laughs> I apologize. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll just cover it up with a poem. <laughs> I'll talk really loudly. <laughs> he decided that rather than rather to disclose all at once, he'd instead only tell people who'd fix it in months. So some meetings were had and work soon began. Vendors wrote patches coordinated by Dan. Fast forward some time, out the closet it came. Some researcher types got into the game. Dan's rules were quite simple, that in 30 days 
he'd present during Black Hat, and we'd all be amazed. A bunch of big egos called Dan on the bluff and said his Vuln was a copy of 10-year-old stuff. So Dan swore them on handshakes, and details were provided, and those same cocky claims soon all but subsided. It seems that Dan's warnings weren't baseless at all, said the same skeptical hackers. The risk isn't that small. So Black Hat was nearing, the web didn't break, then out came a theory from our friend Halvar Flake. No sooner had he posted and described the Vuln's guts than Matasano's blog surfaced, kick the web in the nuts. It said, Halvar's right! We'll no longer keep quiet. The post's ripple effect caused a nasty net riot. The blog quickly was pulled, but the cat's out of the bag. The arms race began since there's no longer a gag. Meanwhile, the issues of honor and trust rehashed the debate of when disclosure goes bust. So Dan's days of 30 we never did see. 13 is okay, but I issue this plea. When researchers consider how to disclose and thus when, will you think of the users, how it might affect them? This ego-fueled rush to put your name on a Vuln has a much bigger impact than you might have known. If the point here is really to secure and protect, then consider what image you really project. In this case, the Vuln is now in the wild. An exploit is coming. DNS soon defiled. The arms race has started and the clock is now ticking. If you haven't yet patched, you'll soon take a licking. I'm not taking sides, really, on the disclosure debate, but rather the topic of patch early or late. What good is disclosure if the world couldn't cope with the resultant attacks if we've all got just hope? There's two sides to this issue. Both deserve merit. But Dan's rep has been smeared. I say, let's clear it. That's Christoph Hoff. What a great, Christopher Hoff, what a great poem. Isn't that perfect? This is wonderful. And is, so is Vuln, V-U-L-N, obviously short for vulnerability. Is that, is, I guess that's yep. much be what researchers use. Yep. Don't want to waste a syllable. Yep. Not if you can help it. Wow, that's great. That's a, well, we'll put a link to that. That's from rationalsecurity.typepad.com. That's his, that's his blog, rational, uh, rational Security or Rational Survivability, he calls it. Actually, he um, says it used to be called Rational Security, but security's dead, don't you know? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's great. Um, so one, of the, one other little issue, a, a Twitch has, has uh, arisen during all these patches. It turns out that the first round of updates to DNS is causing an undisclosed performance problem oh, dear. on DNS machines. Paul Vixie, who's still very involved in the net and DNS, has 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 written formally acknowledging that there is a known problem with the with the first change. But his but his recommendation was: look, do not back out to the vulnerable DNS. We're going to fix the, for, the the performance problem next, but we had to get the main problem fixed first. So that makes me think that a little something more is going on than we know so far because just outbound port randomization, unless unless their algorithm for doing that is somehow funky. I mean, I guess I could imagine if you were on a single port, lots of things are easier than, than continually allocating new outbound, you know, setting up new outbound ports with sockets and sending packets out and getting them back and coordinating it all. So they might just have a rather, you know, first pass implementation of of DNS query source port randomization and they're gonna they're gonna, you know, 
work on on improving the performance hit and this is only in really 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 busy servers i mean those servers that are doing like on the order of 10,000 queries per second wow. are are like they're having more trouble than they were before this change and so a lot a lot of admins are saying wait a minute you know this is really hurting our dns performance and so it's this, and and paul says look he implores them keep the new patch in place we'll get you another one soon that fixes this, this performance overhead. Is it just the overhead of calculating the random numbers or generating the random numbers? I it's without that shouldn't looking, take much time. No, no, it, it wouldn't be random number generator. That's instantaneous these days. But it would it it may be just you know who knows what the algorithms are, what kind of data structures they had, and what they now have. Certainly, over a long period of time, the performance of DNS has been tuned. If it had been highly tuned and optimized for one particular strategy like a fixed port then you could imagine that suddenly changing that to random ports will require a bunch new code well that bunch new code hasn't had a great deal of time to be hand tuned and optimized to bring its performance back up to where where you know years of of performance tuning had 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 honed the prior approach. That makes so, sense, yeah. It's just new code. Would, it's not been optimized well. I would guess that's what's going on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, in something completely off topic, except it's a topic near and dear to our hearts, uh, I watched the new, recently released, like two days ago, Stargate uh, direct-to-DVD movie Continuum last <laughs> night. And? <laughs> I loved it. Oh, I'll have to get it. Now I have to say I'm a Stargate fanboy. I mean I I have I I love Stargate. I watched all ten seasons of SG One. I'm now in the middle of you know what are we fourth season or fifth season of Atlantis. I'm I mean I, I'm you know I'm craving sci-fi and so Stargate is a is a you know it's generally a fun uh, a fun source. But this was a it was a time travel theme movie i i love time travel you know sci-fi and this was really well done we didn't get to see as much of jack o'neill as i was hoping we're going to but you know he did show up for you know a couple little cameos but it was it was a great movie so i just want to tell our sci-fi enthusiast listeners that i recommend stargate continuum the recently released dvd which is a it's a two-hour stargate movie uh, i recommend it without reservation i've never seen stargate well, Leo, then you, you're just—it's too—it's it's <laughs> too, too late. You're too speechless. late for you. No, it's I can go. Late. Can I go back and watch the? I, I'm gonna. This is exciting to me. I now have ten ep, ten seasons to watch. Oh, and I mean, it's really good. What I—I I don't really mean to get off on a whole Stargate rant, but it is—it's very clever because they—they they build a complete mythology. It's the writers really cared about it. It's a. A huge story arc. There's lots of neat bad guys. The concept of the Stargate is wonderful, that Stargates are wormhole anchors. And so they're able to establish wormholes between paired gates. And they do all kinds of neat things. I mean, they they really keep within the mythology. So it's possible, you know, as it happened, for example, in Star Trek, where we end up knowing you know how fast the, the food recyclers work and and all kinds of mundane trivia i mean it's one reason you just can't watch this movie this movie wouldn't mean anything to you without understanding who all the people were and 
and remembering past episodes and, and all that. So for, for, a, for a Stargate person, it's, this is a spectacular movie. But I, I recommend the series without reservation. Um, it went through a little kind of a rough spot, maybe halfway through. There was like maybe one or two or maybe a half of a bad season. But overall, I mean, I, it's just spectacular. So, I, I mean, Stargate's great. Well, as you can hear in the background, the marching brigade is marching on. But <laughs> well, turn off your mic, and I will tell us. About, I'll, I'll read a spin right. Would you story, do that? But... I'm just going to. I'm going to cut my mic because this is ridiculous. Another... They're literally like they're. Out, I don't know why they're blowing right out my window. Apparently, there's a few extra leaves there. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> okay, so this is from uh, Jarvis Weezy, um, who sent us a note uh, on this date of July 30th, so just a few days ago. Now, the subject threw me off because the subject was 713 days, 20 hours, 25 minutes, and 23 seconds slash spin right success. I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, is that how long it took? Was he running spin right for 713 days? The good news is no. Uh, he, I guess he was just put that in there to get my attention. So he, he's, he starts his note by saying, 8-15-2006 was the last day I actually turned on the computer with this drive in it. It was running XP MCE 2005, which is Media Center Edition 2005. And he says, Prenz, it had a disk I.O. error in the system event log and was now completely dead. And then he's in his next paragraph, 7-29-2008 was the day Spinrite allowed me to boot this 500 gig SATA drive that hasn't been used in two years. He says, usually I listen to a TechNet session, but one day last week I clicked over to Security Now on my iPod podcasts. I listen most during my commute to work on BART. So I guess he's in Northern California. So I've been trying to catch up on the content that's available and keep hearing about Spinrite. Now, me being from the old school, I was very skeptical of software fixing hardware problems. So when it came to my drive, I was curious and started Googling Spinrite. Originally, I caused the damage by not securing the drive on those green rails Dell has because I had quite a few drives occupying them. And I happened to move the computer while it was on and heard a bang as the drive moved to the front of the case and remembered I had not yet got the rails on that drive. So sure enough, the drive made that horrible clicking sound and Hitachi Diag said the drive was toast. Note that I didn't have some of my stuff backed up. Some of it was, but a lot of it wasn't. When this drive was purchased two years ago, it was a little more expensive than the $99 they go for now. So I switched back I, so I switched back to the original Dell drive and moved to Vista eventually. I intended to save my money until I had enough to send it to send the drive off to one of those recovery places. But after hearing of the three-month recovery stories and the drive that took flight from the second story, I somewhat skeptically decided to give Spinrite a try. So I started Spinrite this morning and off to work I went. I came back to find the green complete screen. Apparently it had finished around lunch or so as the last partition was around 11:30. So I expected to have to I so I expected to have some access to the drive, but I did not expect 
every sector to be recovered. Every sector Spinrite found a problem on, it recovered. Not only was I able to recover data, but this thing now boots. I am now able to access music I forgot I had. I'm able to now access videos that I forgot I had. DVD compilations for Deaf Poetry Jam. Now, as MCE tries to do God knows how many updates and virus programs ask for renewal, I am looking at all these programs I legally bought as a student that haven't been used since I went off to Vista. And to think I was waiting all this time to save money to send the drive off to a data recovery service when instead I paid $89 for Spinrite. Priceless. And you know, I sent a text message to my best tech friend, and he said I should have just asked him because he would have told me about Spinrite right off the bat. I am a believer. Jarvis, MCSE, MCSA, MCP, Security Plus. Holy cow. <laughs> He's got the certs. That's great. Hey, we got some Q&A for you. Are you ready? Let's do it. You got your beanie on, your thinking cap? These are questions from Security Now listeners. Uh, you just go to Security Now. I'm sorry, GRC.com slash uh, Security Now. You can ask your questions there. Starting with Soons in Canberra, Austria, with an interesting password question. He says, Hello, Steve. I read about and saw your perfect password page, and I think it's great for things like WPA. However, for less than important things, say my Facebook account password, do you think it would suffice simply to use a sentence? For instance, quote, my dog is 12 years old and he runs very fast, exclamation mark, end quote. Perhaps with no spaces in between. Most sites don't seem to like spaces in passwords. It does contain upper and lowercase number and symbols, and of course it's easy to remember. I imagine this is not prone to brute force attack thanks to its length, and whole sentences aren't available in a dictionary. The advantage, of course, is that a sentence is easier to remember than something random. One step further would be to make an intentional, unique grammatical mistake that only you know of, or a spelling mistake, or both. I guess that would prevent rainbow table attacks if an attacker were to generate sentences and use that for brute force. What do you think? Well, I think it's, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, Actually, I do the same thing. I mean, I use, in fact, for my PGP password, I use a phrase, you know. Yep. Um, the, the, there, are, there are two things. Um, first of all, the fact that it's easier to remember is a bit of a warning sign. I mean, the, if it's easy to remember, then that, that means something is weaker from some angle. It's not and, totally random, which is the best. Well, and, for example, if anyone glanced at it, they could quickly acquire it. That is, you know, if, if, if they saw it written down, ah. if, if, they, if, they, if they, like, maybe even, like, watched you typing it and caught most of the letters, they could fill in the gaps just using semantics and grammar. So, so it's, you know, certainly, I mean, I, I like the approach. I think it's very strong in general. Obviously, the longer the sentence, the better. Um, there's there's so many words that can be combined in so many ways, so many possible sentences that, you know, sure, it's not as strong as something from, you know, GRC's perfect passwords page, but it's cer- certainly better than a than a short phrase, which it doesn't it just doesn't contain enough entropy. A long sentence is going to have a lot of entropy in it, not as much as random characters at the same length, but still a lot. I would just be I would just, you know, note that that other humans could could acquire it 
if they had any exposure to it much more quickly than they could something that was random that they had no experience or no not, not, nothing that they could quickly map it onto. All right. Yeah, because I use that. I figure. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I mean, you could, I guess, do a brute force attack, but it would be very difficult because the, the, there's different. There's so many words and there's punctuation. Well, and the other thing is, who's going to know that this is what you're doing? Right. Any any useful system is going to turn whatever you put in into a hash. Right. Hopefully, it's not storing your ASCII and comparing it, because that's the worst thing that, that a system can do. The right thing, for, as we know in security, is to immediately hash that into a fixed-length token, which is also easier for databases to handle, because because that cannot be reversed. So So nobody would know that that's what your password was. They right. wouldn't know that it wasn't a few characters or, you know, or eight. So yeah, I think it's probably a good idea. Very good. So good. I'm, I'm going to continue to do that. <laughs> um, uh, I am Suns in Canberra. No, no, I'm not. Aaron Feichart in North Dakota wonders, how safe his private key is? Steve, you've talked several times on your netcast about PGP public key encryption. I'm wondering how secure my private key really is. I use it to encrypt all my off-site backups, and I like to carry it on a USB drive with me so it's only in one place. I'm worried about what could happen if it fell into someone's hands. The private key has a passphrase, but is there any risk of an evildoer somehow breaking my encrypted backups if they got the key? That's a, that's a great question because I don't particularly protect my private key. Should I be? Well, I, I love the question. First of all, um, PGP has been written using state-of-the-art um, philosophy of security. So, for example, in, in the case of, 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 of the PGP use of a passphrase and a, a, and, and a public key, the passphrase is hashed and is used to encrypt the public key, um, just using symmetric encryption. So it's very fast and, and lightweight. So, so the attack on the passphrase would be would be guessing all possible passphrases, um, hashing those, and applying them to the public key, which is probably more feasible than just brute forcing the the, the hash. The hash the, the hash is going to be long. It's going to be you know 160 bits. You're just not going to be able to brute force that and use that to try to decrypt the the public key. So so the the public key is um, oh I'm I'm sorry I'm saying pri- I'm saying public key and I mean private private key, key. right yes right, right. It, um, I, I was sitting here staring at the text you know seeing PGP public key um, yeah so so in, in in a in an asymmetric encryption system where where the public key is known to everyone and is used either to encrypt something that can only be decrypted by the person with the matching private key, or is used to decrypt something which will only succeed if it was encrypted with the person's private key. In both cases, the strength of this system is that it provides, it provides extremely good security and authentication because you're able to publish the public key Everyone can see what, you know, Aaron's public key is. And they know that if they're able to decrypt something successfully using his public key, then the only way it could have been encrypted 
is the use of the matching private key. Okay, what this means is that keeping the private key secret, the, the, the unencrypted private key, the actual private key, keeping it secret is crucial. Now, to protect the private key when it's not in use, when it's being stored, as Aaron has it on his USB drive, the private key is further encrypted using the passphrase that, that, that he was asking about. So, so the, um, the strength of the passphrase and, and the, the, well, the keeping the private key private are both important. If you, if you absolutely protected your private key so that it was inaccessible to anyone, then someone could argue, look, no one can get it. My, my key management is so good, no one can get my key. Therefore, I'm not going to encrypt it. That is, I'm not going to encrypt it with a passphrase because I don't want to. Uh, and you could say, okay, fine. As long as it doesn't get loose and you're sure your key management is that good, don't bother. On the other hand, um, encrypting it with a passphrase absolutely obscures it so long as the, the passphrase is long and is not, is not brute forcible. So that's the point of attack. Brute forcing the passphrase would, would decrypt the private key if somebody had access to it. So, so if it's on a USB drive, you know, those are inherently moved around. We've told lots of stories about, you know, unscrupulous people saying, Oh, look, a USB drive. I wonder what he's got on it and sucking the contents out. So, so if your private key is ever going to leave in any way, your own, you know, really good protection, then by all means, uh, use a passphrase and the way PGP implemented it is as good as it gets. So I see that iTunes sells uh, Stargate uh, all the seasons. Should I just start with season one and go right through? Uh, if you've, uh, it's a great series, Leo. <laughs> I mean, actually, I would start with the original movie. The oh, original okay. movie was, did you ever see that? No, I haven't seen I don't even know what Stargate is. Oh, my God. Is that Stargate Atlantis? What is that, the original movie? No. What's that? It's just Stargate. Stargate. The, the I'll movie find was that. called Stargate. It is a it is a great <laughs> fun movie, and it was the basis for the series. They main they they continued the mythology, and um, you know they're uh, all on. I'm really pleased they're all on iTunes, so I can put them on my. Uh, oh my boy! IPhone. Yeah, make it easy. Uh, sorry, a little dis- little di- digression there. <laughs> Brad, uh, play it, play it. Let's see. Okay, let me see if I can do this. Play it, Siosis. Play it, Sios. Play. Plyatsius. Plyatsius. Brian says, he's from Melbourne. He's waiting for, oh boy, GRC VPN. G'day, oh. Steve. I've been listening since the beginning of Security Now. I jumped on the Hamachi bandwagon with a hope to move to the open VPN solution you were always promising. While Hamachi was bought out and other options like back to my Mac, go to my PC, go to meeting have come up, I'm still hoping you'll eventually get to a roll-your-own solution. Not only for the preference not to route my traffic and rely on another party for security reasons, and of course because most servers are homed in the U.S., but also to set up access to my home network through the local community wireless network where the internet services are not suitable as it's a private network. Kind regards to both you and Leo Eternal. Thanks for geeking it up. (laughs) Well, I just wanted to respond to Brian and anybody else who feels similarly. Um, As you'll remember, I, I was planning to put together an open VPN set of how to's yes. as I, as I and I've, I've got open VPN working. Uh, it's certainly possible to make it work, but 
boy, is it a pain. And it turns out that doing it right really requires it. it there's so much. It, it's like a it's like a a Swiss Army knife product. Mm-hmm. It it's so general and so capable that the configuration file. I mean, I remember the first time I looked at at the 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 config options. It's just like, oh my goodness, you know, how many months is this going to take? And there are problems on earlier versions of Windows that don't allow um, uh, bridging of network adapters, which you need in order to get OpenVPN working in the right way. There are, there's problems where uh, you get network collision ranges. If your network at home is in the same range as the network where you happen to be VPNing in from, then it's good because it's routing table based. It, it screws up the routing tables. I mean, it's there's as I really got down to trying to make this thing work. Oh, and the other thing they don't tell you is that when you make your own SSL certificates, as you have to using open SSL, um, all of the content of your certificates is sent in the clear. So those all want to be null fields. I mean, there's just, it, it, it got so involved that I finally said, okay, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is dumb. I'm just going to do one. So, you know, I've, I've mentioned it briefly before. It is my main project. Once I get finished with this DNS testing facility, and once I get the cookie system launched, I'm going to be plowing into a product called CryptoLink, which will be GRC's first formal commercial security product. And I'm going to, it's going to be, Sort of everything. It'll do NAT traversal. It'll be Hamachi-like. It'll be able to run in an easy-to-use mode behind NAT routers where GRC will provide the connection or in a trust-no-one mode, I call it TNO, where you, you're able, you're a little bit more technical savvy where you set up your router at home to be the, the server end of the link and so forth. So anyway, um, I, I don't know when. I never know when. But it is absolutely the next thing I'm going to do as soon as I get these other little loose ends finished up. I would need to get the menuing system online. That's done. And then the, get the cookie system finished. That's done. And, of course, we had a little, a little pause here while I do the DNS testing system because I think that's important, too. And, uh, and then CryptoLink is next. That's exciting. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, and you remember that I ran through with you, Leo, confidentially, three pages of bullet points when you and I were having dinner yeah. once. Hoover and your mouth was hanging open. I love like, the uh, oh, you, what's your yeah? It's brilliant. It's really great. There's a bunch of new stuff that no one's done before, so yeah. I'm I'm excited. And uh, it's you know it's interesting with all the free security stuff. You've never done a commercial security product, so I think this nope. will, this will be well more than welcome. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, Peter Chase in Columbus, Ohio, has an idea to avoid using spoofable DNS. Guys, if I obtain the actual IP address for each site I visit and incorporate them into each bookmark, wouldn't that be quicker and more secure than go uh, to go to those websites and using a DNS lookup? That's just what we were just talking about. Yeah, exactly. It, it came up in the in the issue of, of direct IP access to the DNS testing sites. So it's interesting. I mean, he's, he's saying, okay, what if I look up the IP addresses of these important places and put them in the bookmarks instead of the domain name? We sort of touched on this last week. First of all, that would avoid spoofing. You would be going, your browser would be con- connecting directly to the site. I can't say for sure that you wouldn't have some side effects. Um, for example, there is something called multi, um, it's not multi-homing. Um, what, what, uh, I don't remember the name now, Leo. I know, I know the technology. Uh, 
where a bunch of different websites all live on the same IP address. Virtual hosting, virtual hosting, virtual, ho- virtual hosting. Yeah. Yes. Um, the idea is that 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 when your browser makes a query, it connects by IP, but one of the headers in the query is the domain name that is in the URL you're using. So some systems do not give different websites each their own IP. Instead, many websites share an IP, and they depend upon the browser including this extra information saying, well, I'm, I know I want this IP, but this is the host that I want at that IP, which allows multiple, do- multiple web domains or, or websites to live on a single IP. Um, that's still rather common. It's, uh, it is a way of conserving um, I, um, IP addresses. It's generally used by hosting services who like, you know, set, set up you know, inexpensive websites uh, and, and you don't get your own IP. And in fact, sometimes you can pay extra from such a company if you, for whatever reason, you really want to be on your own IP address. Like, for example, you want to offer other services than just web because only the web has the ability to use this, this host's header to disambiguate which site you, you're, at, you're wanting to access at that IP. So it, my, my point is, it's not a universal solution that is to use just an IP address because that wouldn't work at, at, at a site that had multiple domains on a single IP. On the other hand, you could try it, and if it works, it's probably going to keep working, at which point you could build it into your bookmark. The other problem, of course, is if they change their IP, then you would not um, you, your bookmark would break because it wouldn't automatically be using the indirection that basically an indirect pointer that, that DNS also provides and that, that you are g- using something that doesn't change, meaning the name and the, the IP it maps to may change. On the other hand, that's what you're wanting to avoid because it might be a malicious change in the IP that you're trying to keep um, from, from, from happening in your case. So I would say, you know, if somebody's really concerned, if for for some reason they don't feel comfortable or or unable to switch to a fixed DNS server like those offered by OpenDNS, then, yeah, you could use an IP address, but there are some caveats. Very good. And very interesting. Yeah. Uh, The problem, of course, is the trouble that you'd have to take, but I guess you'd only do it once to find uh, all of those addresses. You could just do a... uh, a ping, I guess. That's what I usually do. Is that the best way you think? Just to say pingyahoo.com, then write down the address? Uh, yes, that's a very good point. I, uh, I was going to say nslookup is a command that we all have in our machines. Well, that would but you're too. right. Yeah. The, 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 the ping command does resolve the domain name into the IP, and then it shows you, you know, pinging this IP, blah, 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 and that allows you to pick up the IP address. Somebody that's should a, write a, a little utility to do that, because you're going to want to do it frequently, because as you point out, these things change. Actually, I have one. It's called ID Serve, and it's available on GRC.com. You're kidding. On our freeware page. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's a cute little, nice little GUI. You just stick the the URL in, and it uh, basically the ID. It's it, it, it was I originally wrote it to ID the servers, so you could see what kind of server yeah. uh, people were running back in the days when IIS Microsoft Server was so horribly broken and insecure. Right. The it was a it, there was a threat just even using some remote system that was using IIS. So ID Serve um, identifies the server 
that some remote place is using. In the process, it shows you um, the it, it shows you in nice little color dialog boxes that know what's going on and. Uh, among that information is the IP address. Of what the, we really need of, is something that will go through my um, my my Firefox favorites or bookmarks or my IE favorites, and just replace you know replace them all with the ID with the uh, IP addresses. IP address, yeah. Shouldn't be that wouldn't be a hard thing to write. I'll, I'll work on that on my vacation. Oh, Scott. <laughs> when, you're, when you're not busy catching up on 10 years of Stargate. Yeah. I'm downloading the movie right now. Oh, it's so good. I'm excited. Scott Griswold in London, in New London, New Hampshire, is worried that he didn't need his football. Hi, guys. Love the show. Recently, while play, paying for a transaction on GoDaddy.com, I decided to use PayPal. I had my trusty PayPal security key at the ready. I was very surprised when, after entering my password, the transaction was authorized without prompting me For this secure six-digit code. I received a confirmation email that payment was made, and I immediately went directly to PayPal.com to verify the payment made. Yep, it was. Is this standard practice for PayPal to not require the security key when playing through a third-party vendor? It always asks me for it when I log directly into the site. Can you enlighten me as to what's going on here? Thanks so much. Keep up the great show. Boy, I've never had that happen. I've always had to use the security key. Ditto. Um, So I'm mystified. I wanted to just share this with our listeners. So that they know this happened to Scott, apparently. I I was thinking maybe if he was actively logged on to PayPal just before his logon session may not have expired. And then if he came uh. in on the same browser in the same session, then, you know, but I don't know. Maybe there's a bug over at the PayPal end of things. Uh, I'll be interested to see if any other users report similar behavior if so i'll i'll let our listeners know but i just thought that was an interesting little oopsie yeah uh that, yeah because i've never had it not ask I, yeah. I mean i'm you know anyone who has the football kind of like gets ready the first thing right. you do is you know you go find it before you're going to buy something because you know you're going to have to come <laughs> got, up with got it. my football here i'm, I'm yeah. ready exactly <laughs> matthew justice in austin texas asks just the right question at the right time dear steve i've been looking for a solution to store my passwords online but for some reason i don't trust any of them uh, since you're such a great programmer, I'd love it if you'd write a solution. You could even charge for it. Maybe something that uses a, oh, a GPG key. By the way, GPG is is GNU Privacy Guard, which is the open source version of PGP. That's what I use, by the way. Any thoughts? Thank you for all your hard work over the years. You got something like that? Well, what's interesting is I, is by, and I said when I said he, he asked the right question just the right time, just that morning, uh, yesterday morning, I got a demo from a friend of mine of a password management solution that he is absolutely in love with. It's called Password Safe. It's uh, open source, multi-platform, Linux, Mac, Windows. Um, and, and from what I saw, I am very impressed. I've not done all the due diligence to, to plow into it. But one of the things that I love about it is that it's able to connect to a, a shared resource um, you know, a, 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 a drive share, or I'm thinking through jungle disk to Amazon's S3 service, oh. uh, as long as it's running. Uh, and, um, but it, it looks like it's got very comprehensive sort of enterprise scalability, um, for managing passwords. So, um, I'm going to, we'll do a full episode on it because I, I was very impressed. It does automatic, uh, form filling and, my guess is they probably did everything right. From what I saw, everything looked like it was done right, but I haven't looked under the covers yet. 
I'm going to, but I thought in the meantime, I would just let our listeners know about Password Safe. If you put that those two words into Google, first link is passwordsafe.sourceforge.net, where the project lives. And uh, again, it's it's very nice looking. And the the guy that showed it to me is a is a very savvy, security aware, um, you know, IT guy. And and he and his company have been using it successfully for some time. Mm, and I said he just really loves it. So I like the idea of it uh, being, as you know, of it being open source. Uh, yep, that's that's really great. Peter Fleischman in New York wants to be less nebulous about Nebuad. Is there a way that the host's file could be modified to block Nebuad? By the way, I love your podcast. You and Leo are providing a really valuable service. Let's refresh people. Uh, uh, Nebuad, we spent some time talking about it in forms. These are the things ISPs are using to customize ads based on where you surf. They actually follow you around. And since your internet service provider knows everything you do, um, they they can really keep track of every every move you make, much better than something like DoubleClick. Yes, the, in the case of Nebuad, I referred to it briefly when we when we talked about it and the fact that what Nebuad is doing is injecting a a their their own packet, injecting a a, a packet containing um, some some HTML code at the very end of pages which come up. So when the backslash HTML tag that closes the page appears. Nebuad's technology triggers and basically spoofs one packet into the stream. And I mean, it's, it's not hard to do, but you have to really want to do this because it means you need to, you know, we talked about TCP protocol and sequence numbers. You need to be tracking the connection and, and emit a packet that looks like it's a continuation of that same connection. So, I mean, you know, it's, certainly doable it's not rocket science but what they're doing is they're injecting a packet that contains a a javascript uh invocation and the key is it's pulling javascript it doesn't the packet itself doesn't have the script it's pulling it from a site called a the letter a dot fair eagle f-a-i-r-e-a-g-l-e dot com so all you would have to do is use your host's file to preempt your computer's lookup of that domain name. <clears throat> I would say use both a.fareagle.com and just fareagle.com and just use a, a host file to aim those at the at, at you know at your own machine 127.0.0.1 the so-called local host address and then Everything will work fine. That script simply will not be able to find Fair Eagle. It will not look up uh, Fair Eagle in in DNS. And no, except that you still got a little extra debris at the end of your pages. It will be neutered dead debris, and you're not trackable by Nebuad. We should mention that uh, that everybody, all the ISPs, have decided not to use Nebuad, at least as far as we know. Uh, it might even be illegal in England. <laughs> Now, um, actually, the reason I the reason I mentioned it specifically was that um, somebody who posts in our news groups is under oh. an ISP using Nebuad in the in the United States. Oh, so want, it is oh, it is online terrible. and it is happening. You don't want to say the name. No, uh, what all you all all anyone needs to do is just do a view source of of a web page, and you'll see. 
a reference to Fair Eagle at the very end of the source view. Now, I suppose that they could change their server and then you'd have to find, you'd have to block something else in your host file. Yes, exactly. They, uh, you know, and that's the problem with this is, I mean, it, 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 one, the, the annoying thing about the host's file is it does not allow wildcards. It'd be so nice if you could do star.fareagle.com or starfareagle.com so that anything that was left of the asterisk would match, but the host's file only does exact matches. So we don't have the ability to do that. Uh, you know, it, I'm sure there are other tools around that uh, could do this kind of preemption. And it's looking like such things might become more popular. I'm just looking through my uh, source code, in my, <laughs> a view in source just to make sure. Uh, wow, that's that's really scary. Fortunately, it doesn't look like Comcast is using it. Hi, yeah, yeah. Although, you know, it's possible. Um, well, Comcast got slapped hard for right. uh, it's they're, they The next time they they trickle into messing with people's packets uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to be thinking twice. It might be a good reason to go to Comcast now because they got slapped by the FCC. Right. Daryl Duffy in Coos Bay, Oregon, beautiful part of the country, has a micro question. Steve, I'm a longtime listener to security now and waiting for an opportunity to use Spinrite. Perhaps I have one. My friend has a Nikon camera, a D70, very nice camera. I use it myself as well, and purchased a two gigabyte micro drive with it. He's noticed errors over the past few days. Then went on a trip to look at some real estate. He took a few hundred pictures in a day of various properties. And when he stopped by at the end of the day, the pictures didn't all come off the micro drive. It kept tossing errors and going offline. Only one or a few pictures would come off the drive each time before an error occurred. We noticed that moving to Windows XP rather than Windows Vista allowed more pictures to be recovered. Since XP did not read the drive to update the file data when a list was display was used. I understand you've said that Spinrite does not work on USB thumb drives. I understand why that is. I wonder about micro drives. The micro drive has a compact flash format with a three-quarter diameter hard drive actually inside the compact flash. I wonder if Spinrite would help recover this drive to get pictures from the drive. I gave my buddy a four gigabyte compact flash card to replace his two gigabyte micro drive, but asked him to hold on to it in case Spinrite could recover it. Love the Security Now show. Hey, that's a great question. It is a drive in there, not a uh, not a flash drive. Yeah, I, and you know, the first time I heard about this, I'm thinking, oh, come on. <laughs> How can they put a drive in there? <laughs> a drive in, this, in the same form factor as like a little compact flash, but sure enough, yeah. I mean, there's a little spinning magnetic platter, and I mean... I think that predates... I think it actually geeked. predates the uh, compact flash in that form factor. I think that was the first thing that happened was the micro drive, as I remember. Phenomenal. IBM, well, they're brilliant. And in fact, you know... That would make sense, too, because the Compact Flash has an IDE interface on it. My, I, I have a one, one of the crazy boxes that I'm running OpenVPN on that I was talking about before. I, I built a diskless FreeBSD um, system um, because I just wanted to. Uh, it's where I'm running by nine locally, and, and you know, it, it's my little, you know, my, my, my own network's uh, Unix machine. Um, and... All I had to do was it boots from a compact flash and then doesn't use the compact flash at all. I turn swap files off and I and I, I my my um, my var directory tree in Unix is mapped to RAM. I have two RAM disks and I copy things over at boot time, so nothing is ever writing to the compact flash. And I've marked the root partition and the user partition both as read only, so nothing can write to them because we know you don't want to burn out. Your your e your EEPROM. So it is 
certainly possible to do that. But what was cool was a simple little bracket just adapted the IDE connector to the compact flash. It is, it emulates an IDE drive. So that so it makes sense, Leo, that that the micro drive would have predated the compact flash. Otherwise, you know, why would they give it a, an IDE interface? But anyway, to answer Daryl's question, absolutely. We've had a lot of customers report success using Spinrite on micro drives. Um, and they tend to have a problem because it is a delicate little bit of mechanics. And, you know, being so small, it get, you know, it drops. You know, it just it can easily be mistreated. So, uh, yeah, Spinrite will probably recover it. Very cool. I love that idea. I think now, that they're phasing those out. I don't think you see as many of those as you used to because well, they do top out at two gigs. And I was just going to say, in this day and age... Who would use right. a spinning mechanical flaky thing when you when you can get a solid state compact flash for that are just not expensive anymore? So, right. so but of course the point is it's not that he it's not that he doesn't wish he'd been using a solid state drive. He did use a micro drive and he wants the photos that it contains. I, I think that uh, originally it was those were larger capacity than the flash compact flash and they were faster. Uh, uh, right. They were faster. But now, of course, we've got Compact Flash that's bigger and faster than any drive. So, amazingly enough, technology is so cool. Uh, that's <laughs> John, where we live. I love it. I just love it. Jonathan Kemp in Leicester, England, defends third-party tracking cookies. Dear Stephen Leo, I work for a company in the UK that provides a free service to travelers. I'm not including the name as I'm not after a shameless plug. We rely entirely on affiliate advertising, and one thing that's becoming and will continue to be an issue is cookie blocking and cookie deletion, an increasing trend. In order for a lot of services to remain free, tracking cookies have to be accepted. Otherwise, companies like mine will be losing out on revenue we rely on. This is the other side of the the argument, of course. I'd love to hear your views on this, as I feel there is a fashion in deleting cookies pushed by big internet security companies without users considering or understanding the repercussions for affiliate publishers. After all, this will eventually have a knock-on effect uh, on users looking for free services on the Internet. Keep up the good work. And I'd add to that, really, because I have a little dog in this hunt, uh, blocking banner ads, which you can easily do. And, uh, and I, you know, people. It's one of the reasons I think, in a way, it's good for podcasting. It's a lot harder to cut the ad out of the podcast, but people do that as well. Um. And these are these are free services that are paid for by advertising. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I included this because his viewpoint had never been, um, you know, entertained here. I'm I'm very anti-tracking, anti-third party cooking. I mean, so c- cookie <laughs> third party cooking. Uh, actually, I do. I I enjoy third party cooking. <laughs> you live on third party cooking, uh, Mister <laughs> Restaurant. <laughs> um, so, you know, so, but I, I thought his position ought to be represented. There was a discussion. Um, we had a really interesting discussion in our news groups many years ago, back when I was entertaining the idea of, of basically building a filter for browsers. And one of the options we were considering was, you know, ad blocking, blocking ads completely. And the, the, the ethical question was, you know, is it okay? Is it okay for users to block ads. And I mean and both sides were represented and I think both sides were re- were represented well that the you know the idea being okay wait a minute if I go to a web page I didn't you know am I implicitly agreeing to to accept 
everything the page offers. Why can I not be selective? And, you know, and, and the argument you bring, Leo, is, is a good one. It's like, okay, wait a minute. You know, web pages depend upon advertising in order to survive. So, so you know, don't, don't users have some obligation to, to see all the content? And, of course, then I say, well, okay, um, I have TiVo. Why do I love TiVo? Two reasons. It, it allows me to watch things asynchronously in sort of the same way that I love email and news groups because I don't have, you know, I'm not live chatting. I don't have to be watching television when it's being broadcast. But also, frankly, the commercial skipping is to die for. Okay, well, as a viewer of broadcast television, don't, don't I have an obligation if I'm getting this free TV to sit there and endure the commercials? And, you know, is it okay for me to get up and, and, and go pee in the middle of the show? <laughs> yes, it's okay. At a commercial break. No, no, it's not okay. I have to watch the commercial. There are even this- some people who think I should click on a banner once in a while or I should buy something just to support the show. I don't think you need to do that. Yeah, so I mean, I guess my point is these are interesting questions yeah. and, and they're not cut and dry. They, they have two sides to them. I think we love the free stuff we get. Um, you know, for instance, I looked into podcasting. There are three ways you could we could do this show. We could do it uh, donate, listener to donation based, which is the way I'd prefer to do it. In fact, that was my original plan. But not enough people donate. Only about two percent of our listeners donate. Of course, we don't flog it, but I don't want to flog it. So that's one way. Uh, another way is to charge a subscription fee. And uh, frankly, uh, in the states at least, we're so used to getting free content, television and radio, that nobody wants to do that. And I've noticed a lot of shows that have tried that have failed. Uh, including Ricky Gervais, who had the most popular podcast in the UK. He was at 400,000 downloads, went paid, and it was over. And he went back to the free model. So those, I think I, I think we have to do advertising-based. That's what everybody's used to in their, in their, main, in their media, from the mainstream media. Um, and just, you just hope that people, uh, you know, fortunately the ads work on our shows. Um, but well, we, but we're I- very careful. We choose products that we like, that we think our audience would like. We try to do the ads relatively unobtrusively with some content in them. And, you know, my hope is that the quality of the content, the quality of the show, yes. you know, al- ju- allows it to carry to justify the, right. the, the, the advertising support that we need in order to be able to put the quality into the show. I have to tell you, though, I've in the, in the recent uh, weeks received because we now have three ads in the show, which is, by the way, the max we'll ever have. But I have re- received several emails from people saying I'm not going to listen anymore. It's too many ads. Which cracks me up because if you listen to commercial radio or watch commercial TV, there's five times more ads. Yeah. I don't understand. You know, I, I, I guess people don't watch any commercial TV either. We just have to, you know, this is how we have to support ourselves. These shows used to be very cheap to do. They're not so cheap anymore. <laughs> uh, it's a great question, you know. And, uh, but then there's also the, the line between third-party cookies and Nebuad. How far are you willing to go? Right. Where, where, is, where, is, where does it become a privacy violation? Bobby Clark in Berea, Kentucky, brings an important new Google Mail feature to light. Stephen Leo, Google has added a setting inside of Gmail for always use HTTPS. Yay. With that set, you don't have to put HTTPS colon slash slash gmail.com to be guaranteed a secure connection uh, while on Gmail. I noticed that the other day. That's great news. Yep. I just want to make sure all of our listeners knew that there is that setting which which they can turn on 
And, you know, mine's on because and just the other day I was talking about Gmail, you know, flipping back to non-secure. If you came in non-secure, it would briefly make you secure and then and then right. switch you back. Now you can say absolutely always. And that makes Yay. it un, unspoofable. The bad guys cannot spoof Gmail. That is the, you know, the DNS spoofer guys, because because your browser will check Gmail's certificate on an SSL connection. And if it's going somewhere else, um, you, all you have to do is make sure HTTPS is up and running. Yay. Yep. I've been using a uh, Firefox plugin called uh, Customize Google to do that. But now it's just a setting. It should have always been a setting. I'm not sure why they didn't do that before. Um, we're going to pause for a moment, but uh, coming up, the fantastic news of the week and the cool tip of the week. But right now, well, let's pay some bills with the folks Speaking from advertising. Audible.com. See, I don't. I love doing Audible ads. I think we have so much fun with them because we talk about books. Uh, and, of course, because I'm a major Audible fan. I'm on Audible is, uh, say, has saved my life for the last 10 years. I joined Audible in uh, 2000, I think, or 2001. So maybe it's been eight or they've been around 10 years. Um, I can go back to my very first Audible book and listen to it again. And it's just so great. To, I have 300 more or more volumes. And these are the books I listen to commuting back and forth to tech TV for years, three hours a day of reading. And I, you know, I'm in some ways, I don't miss the commute. I miss the reading time when you're in the car, when you're gardening, I use it at the gym. When I I walk to work now and I listen on my walk or my bike, audible.com, 50,000 titles. You pick a title, you download it. You've got it within seconds on your player and it could be an iPod. It can be a Kindle, a Sansa. Uh, People listen on their Tom Toms, their GPSs. There are newbies. And even the Zune, I understand by next month, will have uh, Audible capability, which is fantastic. Audible.com. Now, by the way, there's a special URL, audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, if you want to get a free book, you want to try Audible, if you haven't yet joined, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And you can sign up today. You get a free book. One I might recommend. I know we have a lot of sci-fi listeners. The Hugo Award winner for 2006 Best Novel of the Year. Many agreed one of the greatest science fiction stories of this decade. Have you read any Robert Charles Wilson? It's not. I don't think it's your kind of sci-fi, Steve. No, I have his name's unfamiliar. Yeah, me too. Spin is the name of this, and I, I, you know, I, I picked it just because it, it is a big award winner, and I like the premise. Uh, the uh, aliens have put an artifact that between the us and the sun and the moon, it's blacked out space so we get heat from the sun but not light anymore and here's the worst thing time passes faster outside the barrier more than 100 million years per day on earth which means the sun's death is about 40 years away it's a these rip- are bad these are bad aliens bad aliens man Why bad they do this? aliens <laughs> well that's part of the puzzle ah. and of course what to do about it it's kind of a 40 years to or, or nothing this is the beginning of a, of a saga Spin is the first. Uh, wow. Axis is the second. It's just, I tell you what, this is a great book. But if you like sci-fi, you are going to love Audible because they have really beefed up their science fiction collection. Robert Charles Wilson's Spin, our pick of the day. But you pick any of 50,000 titles is your free book. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We are so grateful for your support, Audible, and making this show a success. Audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Steve, are you ready? No, I, I, I want to know what the aliens have up their sleeve. <laughs> I'll tell I you when I finish. Oh. <laughs> you want me to spoil it for you? Isn't that oh, interesting? 
Yeah. It's, no, there's a, there's a, there's a, that's a, um, a genre alien, the alien artifact genre, I think. And I yeah. really enjoy uh, those mysteries. And Robert, you know, Peter Hamilton does that a lot too in his stuff where, you know, aliens are up to something. Yeah. Uh, but what is it? And that's, of course, that's kind of the premise of uh, Pandora Star. Um, and it just, uh, that Peter Hamilton stuff is not yet on Audible. When it is, man, I will jump up and down and reread every one of his books. Those pesky aliens. Those pesky aliens. They're at it again. I do. All right, let's get on with our uh, very exciting, fantastic, wonderful, extra special news of the week. This is from Brian Scallon in London, UK. Hi, Steve and Leo. Wonder if Amazon has been listening to the podcast in which you mention how the market is ripe for a competitor to PayPal. I'm excited about this, too. Yep. They've just launched a rival, payments.amazon.com. Thanks for the great show. I immediately took a look at that. Um, yep. What do you think, Steve? It looks very good to me, Leo. I just, you know, I'm I'm an Amazon fan. I, you know, the, there's hardly a day UPS doesn't pull up with something from Amazon. And, uh, you know, and of course, I'm a, a happy Kindle owner. Oh, by the way, my replacement Kindle came promptly. I moved stuff over. Oh, I switched my news. account over. I sent the, old, the, the one with the broken screen that I broke uh, back, and it was a completely good experience. So, you know, let's hope this thing, this, I mean, Amazon's got a, enough of a name that I can imagine sites that support PayPal adding an Amazon.com purchase button, much as sites are also doing for Google. Well, I so, would love to replace uh, PayPal uh, for our payment system. Uh, we get a lot of complaints about it, and as you know, PayPal ripped me off. Yep. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm I'm anxious as can be to replace PayPal. My only concern is you have to be in, you have to have an Amazon account to use this, right? Correct. Yeah, you do. Yeah. So I mean, we have to have to have a you don't have to have a PayPal account to pay us through PayPal. You can use a credit card. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. It, in effect, PayPal is really really just providing us with merchant services. So it sounds maybe a little bit like Amazon is trying to push people into this to expand their, you know, their their overall buyer base. Sure. Once you're you already got an account, just buy something, you know? Yeah. And I imagine oh I can't imagine many people who listen to this show aren't Amazon members, except for we have a huge global audience. And while Amazon certainly is, is a global presence, uh, I think in Australia, the UK, Sweden, they may not be the same presence. Uh, if, you know, for instance, in Canada, Amazon only sells books, so they're not uh-huh. as popular. So, um, wow. and and they're more expensive. So I think that I don't know. It's, this is a tough one for me. I'm thinking maybe we just get some a merchant services account and let people just use a credit card. Well, um, and I, you know, again. Uh, as we've said, PayPal needs competition. I'm glad that another, you know, a major potential competitor has stepped up. Yes. Yeah, it can only be good to have yeah. some competition. Finally, our last question. Sad to say, our cool tip of the week, Ryan Morris in Niagara Falls, the Ontario, Canada side, says, Dear Steve, last year my friend went to the University of Waterloo and could not use any routers at school. We were talking about the University of Pennsylvania, right? Uh, just like that uh, last show. I told him to get a Mac, though he is a pure Linux user. I then explained to him that you can use a Mac as a router. If you have a Mac computer plugged in, you can turn the Wi-Fi radio into a hub. It's very easy and in the settings, and it's as easy as connecting to a regular Wi-Fi router. And yes, you can add a password. The only downfall is your Mac has first priority to bandwidth. That's okay. And whatever's yeah. left is spread out. Also, it can work in reverse by connecting over Wi-Fi and turning the Ethernet port into a hub. Love the show, Ryan. P.S. Spinrite is the only piece of software I ever bought. And I have a ton of software. 
Ryan's a little pirate, <laughs> but he didn't pirate your stuff. And I think that's, you know, and you don't secure, you don't put uh, any uh, DRM on it or anything, copy protection or anything. Nope. That's a really good example of, I think when you treat people like thieves, they act like thieves. It works for people and they appreciate it. And yeah. then, you know, how people have we heard uh, say, this is the best $89 I ever spent. Yep. I oh. should point out that, yeah, you can do that with a Mac, but you can do it with any computer. Linux does it just fine. It's called, it's called a, uh, and what is that called? A um, ad hoc network, right? Yes. Yes. So it's, but you need two uh, connections. One to bring the Ethernet in, in this, uh, the uh, Internet in. In this case, he used Ethernet. And then the second connection to distribute it, which could be Ethernet. Uh, or or in, since many machines have both Ethernet and Wi-Fi, this is a great way to do it. You set up yeah, an ad so hoc connection. An ad hoc as opposed to base station where you've got two computers connecting to each other as opposed to a base station and a computer. Right. So, uh, yeah, and I know Windows with Internet connection sharing effectively does the same thing. It's a little harder because of all the finicky bits, but uh, you could totally do that. So that's yep. a great tip. Steve, we've run out of time. Well, and you're off to uh, the airport. Uh, well, not exactly the airport. I'm off to San Francisco, not oh, to the airport. I'm going to do a radio show in San Francisco, uh, ah, okay. the Ron Owens show at 11 on KGO. And then I'll be back. We're going to do some gizwizzes because next week I am taking four days off. We're going. Uh, we're going to drive up with the family to uh, um, the 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 gold country and take some oh, time cool. in the woods. Well, I did want to mention. Uh, I love getting questions. The questions get to me by people who go to grc.com/feedback. So there there is a link to that at the bottom of the security now page but you can go directly there if you've got something to say grc.com slash feedback and i love to hear from people every time i i go and and pull notes i get on the order 450 wow. new submissions so i apologize wow. to people i sometimes i i see them and they say oh this is the fourth time i've written and you never <laughs> you know blah it's like i i know i'm so sorry i mean i get so much mail but that's what drives these Q&A episodes. I, I do respond and read everything I'm able to. So I, it's really sincerely appreciated. So thank Fantastic. you, everybody, for your feedback. Well, and while you're at GRC.com, make sure you check out SpinRight, of course, Steve's great program, the ultimate disk maintenance and recovery utility, and all of the great freebies he's put up there. Shields up, shoot the messenger, decombobulator. Uh, and don't forget Wismo. Love Wismo. Really useful little doohickey for your, I think the best way to describe it actually is doohickey. Or your windows. <laughs> it does so many things. <laughs> does everything but give you a hickey. It's uh, all there at grc.com along with transcripts of this show. 16 kilobit versions for the bandwidth impaired. Check it out today. GRC stands for Gibson Research Corporation. Steve Gibson, always a pleasure. Thank there's, you for... I was just going to say, there's one other thing that I forgot to mention that, that you're reminding me about the freeware reminded me of. Yes. Uh, years ago, I was... Doing a little work, you remember I told you about it confidentially for the government, right. uh, a communication system, a new type of communication system for the Internet. And um, uh, I wrote and uh, doing so in, in research, I wrote something I call DNSRU, DNS Research Utility. And it is, as far as I know, the only really comprehensive DNS benchmarking tool very Ever. cool. Well, and it's funny because it's been kept alive in the hearts of the people in our news groups. Mm -hmm. And when I mentioned that I was going to be doing this DNS spoofing test, someone said, uh, Steve, uh, could we have that back? Because it's, it's funky. I never, I never 
finished it because I got I used it for all the information that I needed and and at, at the time I had an expiration in it so that you had to hold both shift keys down when you launch it in order for it to in order to like bypass the hey this this copy's too old you probably ought to you know refresh yourself with right, a new one right. except there is no new one anyway I'm going to dust it off and change it around a little bit because it had some stuff in there that wasn't about DNS benchmarking, but it's got the really a cool DNS benchmark. And since people are looking at doing things like maybe changing DNS servers or, 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 or checking to see, remember that the performance of DNS is critical because it's the first thing your browser does to look up an IP address for anything it's doing. So Faster DNS does mean a faster overall experience on the Internet. And uh, so I will be adding before long uh, a permanent addition to our freeware, which, which is going to be this really cool DNS server benchmark. Oh, that's excellent. So we'll look for that, too. Yep. At GRC.com. And we will look for you next week, Mr. Steve Gibson, every Thursday. Come rain or shine or even vacation, Steve Gibson's here. <laughs> For the latest security news. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next time. Talk to you then, Leo. Bye. Security now.